Well, well, well. Welcome back. We are back. I'm Dave. I'm here with Janet. And this is the Book on Fire podcast. We are... It's high summer here. It is summertime. The last time that we talked to y'all, it was springtime. <laughs> and we were talking about how the spring peepers were out, and you could hear the spring peepers in the background. Spring peepers are still here, um, but now they've been joined by the fireflies, which are starting to fill the hollows and the gardens and little by little even the woods of the land uh, here. But they're not, they're not, they're nowhere near their peak yet. But uh, hopefully if we get a rain sometime soon, they are really going to, really going to emerge. Uh, and today is May 30th. Uh, we are taking a break from Taking a break from gardening, medicine making, chopping up firewood, moving it around, teaching herbal medicine at our school, and everything else that we do um, in full swing right now to have this final-ish conversation devoted to Donna Haraway's book, uh, Staying with the Trouble, which we've been reading since February. Is that right? February? It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a long time. And if you're listening to this, thank you for sticking with us because we know that these episodes have gotten a little further apart. Um, but I think that I'm really excited about this one uh-huh. because this has been a really amazing book and a really fun book to read and really fun book to read with y'all and talk about. And I don't know, it's just our conversations have spun off in a lot of different, really interesting and productive directions. So today we are just going to have Final thoughts, kind of. I mean, final is the wrong word, but kind of wrap up conversation about some of the highlights, the book maybe, and then also just kind of where we want to take it, where we want to take this book to, how we would like to extend the ideas in the book, right? Mm-hmm. And thanks to folks who have like written in or commented in any way, it's informed what we're going to say today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, maybe we should just get into it. So this book is like, it's been eight chapters, which really only totaled, I think, like 167 pages, something. It's one of those books that has almost as many pages of endnotes as it does text. Mm-hmm. Some of the chapters were quite short. Some of them are very, very memorable. I think the Tentacular Thinking, the Symposiuses chapters are were like really big for me. How about you? The book is packed with information and things to think about, and I actually am looking forward to listening to the discussions again, so I can revisit some of the thoughts I was having along the way and some of the Mm. groundling went too, because I feel Uh. like there's, uh, I can't even remember all of the thoughts I had at this point. So you're going to subscribe maybe to the podcast? I might subscribe to the podcast. Maybe you can rate us on iTunes. (laughs) I'm not, does it matter if I'm not on iTunes? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Someone else should do that maybe. Um... I I don't know. I was just thinking about how it felt like a big chunk of my mind for the past few months has been devoted somewhat to this on and off. But now that I've gotten really busy in the summertime, I'm less... I had to just be reminded of where all we've gone. Yeah. Um, which is why this might be a more of a winter-type podcast for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, going back through the chapters, I revisited uh, the Sympoiesis chapter and reread the comic about the bee orchid and the orchid that who has lost its mutualism and lost its pollinator. And was just, once again, really moved by that. And it's nice because there's like a it rounds off in the Camille stories with a story of someone who loses their uh, mutualism, yeah, a character who or a lineage of characters who lose their connection to their species, other other than human species that they share mm-hmm. a life way with. Um, so I don't know. I've definitely been like revisiting the concept of collective grief and individual grief and how we will be able to face that and make space for it in their life now and our life as all of us move on, which I'm not maybe really ready to go into any depth right now, but I was just remembering that and being glad that that was tied together because some ends, there's some loose ends in the books or, or threads that are not picked back up and woven back in, but the grief part does feel like it comes back. Yeah, she does. I liked the way that it really ends with that. 
the whole book ends with that. It really does. There's a lot of inspirational models that she's tried to fill the book with for ways that we can make these really potent, vital, transformative connections Mm -hmm. towards multi-species flourishing and all of these goals. And there can be like a giddy almost. I mean, you know, the book is full of the challenges, but there can be like kind of a giddiness to like the string figures and theorizing these multi-species connectivity. But it definitely, I like the reminder at the end that like, oh, the future will be a time of grief. Yeah. And the present. I mean, just like now, Mm -hmm. you know, like these bad feelings aren't just going to go away, you know, and there's going to be a lot more to grieve. Mm -hmm. Uh, no matter how, no matter how good we do, mm-hmm. you know. What do you, what chapters stand out for you when you think back on the book? Uh, what or parts. Ch- <clears throat> what stands out for me? The, in the very first chapter, the st- string figures, because the first chapter is called Playing String Figures with Companion Species, and the actual concept of the string figures uh, I mean, I'm kind of an ontology nerd, and so the figure of the string figure with its knots, like the Jacob's Ladder or like the Cat's Cradle figure, as an image of the way that connectivity between life forms and species and stuff happens in nature that can be like reconfigured and then passed on and all of that stuff was very... It made a big imprint on me. I also really loved the uh involutionary momentum um paper that was referenced which i went out and read to on my own so that was kind of a line that i followed out of the book into something that she referenced which has to do which had to do with the concept of involution as a complement to evolution mm-hmm. where evolution as in the evolution of species has to do with things diverging from one another where involution has to do with species coming together and forming mm-hmm. relationships and forming assemblages, mm-hmm. you know, not like merging genetically, but forming relationships like the bee and the orchid and stuff. Uh, that was really big for me. Um, and then I think like the, in that same chapter, the Sympoiesis chapter, uh, the final, the final example of science art worldings, mm-hmm. which is, the Navajo churro oh, sheep right. yeah. and everything going on around, around Diné and Hopi history, fossil fuel extraction, you know, colonization, genocide, extermination of the sheep. And then the resurgence mm-hmm. of the churro sheep in within this matrix of anti-fossil fuel extraction activism right. and indigenous lifeways resurgence and all of this stuff, uh, was like a very, very powerful of all of the like concrete examples mm-hmm. of things that Haraway sees happening on the ground that she holds out as at least partial embodiments of the kinds of principles that she's highlighting and promoting with the book. That one did a lot for me. Yeah. It was really powerful. With well, it feels really concrete. Very concrete and also just just very wide-ranging, Yeah, you know, where it's not only an example of multi-species partnership, because it's humans and sheep at least, but it's also partnership among different humans with different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So it's like Navajo people, Hopi people, mm-hmm. sheep fancier, like herder people. This is not sheep fanciers. <laughs> I was... <laughs> we've are... talked about pigeon fanciers on the <laughs> podcast before sheep fanciers maybe is not a thing but it might be a thing but it has a different connotation yeah <laughs> is fancier the word for that um the sheep tenders yeah but then also you know it's the also the intersection of indigenous resurgence mm-hmm with direct action against extractive economies, right. climate change and fossil fuels, you know, just it, there's just so many intersections. Yeah, it That's has, what makes it powerful. It has the art component, it. but it's not like art as an end result. Mm-hmm. You know, there's art in there, which is the blankets and the weaving, yeah. which is functional art, mm-hmm. but it's still art. 
mm-hmm. you know, but it is not art in and of itself with a goal for drawing attention to the issue. Right. Which a lot of the examples feel right. like that to me. Right. They're more conceptual art as. Right. Like the coral reef. Well, the coral the reef, crochet. some of the pigeon, but um, I feel like there's something very right. different around the l- big conglomeration of folks and organizations that are working together to support Navajo folks in their own work. Yeah. To restore this tradition, yeah. restore relationship with the sheep, and to fight fossil fuel mm-hmm. extraction and its impact on their communities. Um, it feels different to me. It doesn't feel like art doing a job. Yeah. The art is just like part of all of the, it's woven in with the rest of the yeah. um, material there. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some highlights of the book for me. Yeah. I'm sure there's more, but that's what I can, that's what I can think of right now. So I know that we've had some things come up for us again uh, throughout the, the podcast or the discussion of the book of just like parts that we feel like are maybe missing or, or what, it, what would we like to see added to this or, or to put it in a more positive way, like how would we extend what is in the book? Yeah. That's been a question for me is like how taking what the book is doing really well mm-hmm. and the ground that it's covering, how does this fit in to everything else that we're trying to do? Right. Cause it's a book of a lot of syntheses. So it's bringing mm-hmm. in a lot of stuff, but it still doesn't pretend to address, to answer all the questions or to tell us everything we need to know, you know, mm-hmm. to move forward. We're, we're already moving. This book can inform some of what we can do. And so how do we incorporate it? How do we, yeah. And like Janet's saying, how do we extend the insights in the book in ways that plug in to the challenges we're facing, the struggles that we're undertaking? So one thing that I kept thinking about, especially in the initial chapters of the book, which feels like where more of sort of the philosophical groundwork for the book is getting laid, uh, was where is the vitalism in this text? And what I mean by that, what I mean by asking that is there's a, I don't know, what would you call it? A philosophy? A philosophy, a practical approach to life mm-hmm. that I have. Obs- and an observation. Yeah, that's based on observation. Right. Um, that I've come to, and Janet shares this, our school of herbal medicine is explicitly vitalist. The blog that we write is called Radical Vitalism. (laughs) This is something that permeates, it's a concept that permeates a lot of what we do. So, but maybe y'all don't know about this. It has to do with, uh, basically, I mean, it has a lot of implications, and it has a lot of implications for, like, working with people's health and everything, but it basically, the fundamental insight of vitalism is that Nature, with all of the problematicness of that word possibly, but nature, uninhibited, mm-hmm. knows how to create life, to create complexity, and to heal from damage. Mm-hmm. Right? And when life is not healing well, mm-hmm. it's usually because there's obstacles to that. Right. Something is keeping it from healing, or it's lacking in some variety of nourishment. It's lacking in some like b- basic fuel or nutrition or something. Mm-hmm. And we can consider that broadly, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what kind of system, living system, whether it's a community or a, like a human community or a plant community or a human organism or something, lacking in some kind of resource that it needs to have vitality, mm-hmm. right? So part of the insight that comes from vitalism is that like nature, whatever this is, you know, like an ecosystem, the planet, um, our bodies have an innate ability to live, grow, mature, create complexity. And that also means bouncing back Mm -hmm. from harm and damage, Mm -hmm. you know? And so part of what vitalism does is it resists the kind of like heroic urge in medicine because we articulate vitalism in a holistic healing context that that kind of assumes that like the doctor or the medical system is going to like go in there and perform the healing intervention you know is going to like fix the body the way that a mechanic fixes a car Mm -hmm. you know uh but a car 
is not like a living system that has its own healing impulse, mm-hmm. like a body is. Uh, and so vitalism says, yeah, there's lots of interventions to be made, you know, and like we as herbalists or doctors or whoever facilitate healing, but let's acknowledge that there's an innate healing drive and power mm-hmm. that exists in everybody, every ecosystem, the planet, all this stuff. And so where those thoughts come into play when reading this book is where I just don't feel the vital, the vitalist observation mm-hmm. reflected in the way that Haraway or her colleagues like Annette Singh talk about the like recuperation mm-hmm. and recuperation in the sense of like a sick person getting better that that needs to happen the recuperation that needs to happen i see a lot of haraway talking about like we need to make these intentional connections mm-hmm. and we need to like be experimental about participating in ecosystems and with other forms of life in these like novel assemblages that can create finite flourishing to mm-hmm. use her language and it's all great i mean i love it and also i think that it's missing this baseline that says connections happen and healing occurs through connection mm-hmm. a lot of times when the forces that impede it are removed mm-hmm. or like or undermined mm-hmm. you know and uh, there's enough resources to fuel those connections happening. You know, it's just like, you know, like you can clear cut some of this Southern Appalachian forest and organisms will come in, you know, plants will grow, shrubs will grow, they might make berries, it'll attract birds, the birds will make droppings that fertilize the soil. These are like well-studied processes of healing mm-hmm. that happens without any human intervention coming in. The humans just do the harm by clear-cutting. And then the other organisms come in and heal the land and build the soil back up and retain nutrients and all of this stuff. Um, And just that fundamental insight that healing happens without us having to do it necessarily any kind of like novel experimentation. It's missing. It's kind of missing, Mm -hmm. you know. And I'm still, I'm really excited about all of that experimentation. Mm -hmm. You know, people out there doing like, Mycoremediation with mushrooms and like doing, I mean, you know, like all of this stuff. It's like, I'm, I'm not saying we don't need to do that. <laughs> but I would also, I would add to what's going on in this book an appreciation mm-hmm. for vital healing as a baseline process of nature. Do you have anything to comment on that? Yes, I do. Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you came up with a clear-cut forest metaphor because I kept thinking while you were talking about... Um, I feel like what you're pointing to is the human tendency to think that we are necessary for systems to heal. Yes. That we are part of. Yeah. And I would argue, I would argue that we are in the sense that we are part of systems that are the obstacles to healing and that those yes. obstacles need to be removed. Yes. Uh, but I would say that our tendency to... It's not the way she's talking about ...identify it, ourselves mm-hmm. as p- crucial to the healing mm-hmm. feels like a form of hubris, which she points to other places. Yeah. But it can also be kind of ham-fisted and misguided if we don't have some sort of awareness around connection and how things work already. And my example of that that I was thinking of is... Um, I think it was... Last year, maybe it was the fall before that, actually. No, it was two falls ago. There was a ton of fire uh, in the Pacific Northwest in the Columbia River Gorge. Yeah. Like, a lot of fire. After a century or more of fire suppression, right? Right. So, fire is part of the natural cycle there. Mm -hmm. And fire is important for that ecology. And fire has been suppressed for a long time, and it's affecting trees up and down and systems up and down the West Coast. Yeah. This fire suppression. Right. People were freaking out because the places that they, humans were freaking out, but because of the places that they like to go hiking and stuff were on fire, it was really hard. Because of this kid who set off some fireworks. Right. Right. However, post-fire. Right. Um, you know, you had some people being like, cool, maybe this is going to put us back into balance a little bit, even though that was a lot. 
Um, there were also a lot of people being like, all right, you guys, let's get out there. We're going to meet up. Let's go play at some trees. We're going to like get this going. And meanwhile, the people who actually are more familiar with the system and the importance of fire there was like, you planting trees might actually be destructive in this situation because the fire, the forest has its own response to fire. Right. You know? Yeah, because people were doing GoFundMes to buy seedlings and stuff. And it was like, right. I remember some of these conversations. It was as if the forest wasn't prepared for this. Yeah. And didn't have a way to move forward on its own without well-meaning humans from Portland going out and planting trees. Yeah, right. Um, right. And so, <laughs> yeah. to be fair, I mean, I was aware of all this because of friends in Portland and other places in the Pacific Northwest who were criticizing this in- in idea and uh, urge to fix things. Right, because we um, don't live in an ecology that is so yeah. dependent on fire. No, not at all. Um, and so... This is not something I would have come up with on my own. I just like watch the dialogue happening and mm-hmm. thinking about it. But I feel like if we're not careful, we can be these tree planters interfering with a system yeah. who already has a plan or has a way to, to heal itself and mm-hmm. move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thought I have. I just wanted to say as an aside that I actually think Anna Singh understands vitalism, but it is more important in her work outside of this. Okay. She doesn't actually talk about vitalism with, sure. as she's yeah. quoted here or in her other text, but I will say... I don't say, need people to say the word. But in <laughs> um, The Mushroom at the End of the World, she does talk about the emergent life and vitality and um, exciting ways of being and connection that, uh, that erupt mm-hmm. almost in the way that a fungal fruiting buddy would in the... Oh, yeah, uh-huh. In the network and multi-species connections that right. follow the Matsutakis. Right. So anyway, I just want to say that I don't think that she is averse to that way of thinking. So maybe like in Mushroom at the End of the World, the the things that she's documenting, mm-hmm. like the cultural things, the mushroom distribution thing. I don't. I haven't read the book, <laughs> but all of the things that she's documenting, the relationships that are forming between mm-hmm. the mushrooms and these humans and stuff are could be interpreted as potentially vital healing in action. I think so and I would even say that the Matsutake itself That is what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's right. Like those things happening are the larger planetary ecosystems like trying to heal themselves. Right. And something. the Matsutake itself in the places mm-hmm. where they come up in, in great abundance where yeah. there are camps and people harvesting them yeah. because there's so many of them are often disturbed landscapes according right. to her. Right. Um, where when there's actually like tonnage of them mm-hmm. um they are often in places that are disrupted and, and in transition and so i think she sees the mushrooms themselves as part of the healing process that is inherent in the system and the people connecting into that are part of that healing as well mm-hmm. so i do mm-hmm. think she actually has a more vitalist approach whether or not she's saying that right yeah well thanks for that i mean yeah and that helps me see the light in you know, this thing that I'm pointing out that I'm like, is it lacking? I'm not sure. Uh-huh. You know, because it's, it's not like there's no room for it right. in what Haraway is saying. I just think, I'm just always trying to add that into conversations. Sure. I'm just trying to add that into frameworks, you know, um, because I also want to undermine, undermining the like, we need, you know, the sort of humans as saviors mm-hmm. too, that says like, we need to strap cell phone transmitters on the backs of pigeons mm-hmm. in order to right. move this problem forward into a healing direction. The The solutions are going to come from these innovative art science worlding experimenters who are going to like think outside the box mm-hmm. and create these like odd connections that are going to end up having a healing influence or else there's going to be just greater degradation, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, I think that definitely humans need to act. Mm-hmm. Obviously, humans need to act to the extent that it's human-controlled forces that are the obstacles to healing. Right. You yes. know? Um, <laughs> you know, so that's like a reframing. That's mm-hmm. like a... F- or that's a framing that I would add on to what is going on in this book. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, uh, nature knows how to heal, knows how to create abundant, diverse, amazing, jaw-dropping life and 
and some poetic, you know, connections of life in these ecosystems of codependency out of a planet of just water and rocks, you know, uh, that all happened and that all, and it might happen again, might happen again, you know, um, it's not so, for me, it's not so much that we need to form these sympoietic connections so that the world can heal. Mm-hmm. Although I'm into those too, but also we need to act against the forces that discourage those connections from happening, mm-hmm. you know, and keep them from happening. So, you know, it's not, I just want to make clear that I'm not saying like, hey, the earth can heal. Like, we don't need to like, <laughs> we don't need to be like all heroic and like act about it or something it's not on us like you know forget about it or whatever that's not my point (laughs) uh hopefully y'all understood that that's not my point my point isn't that we need to do less or something because nature can heal it's that i think when we talk about that we need to undermine our own heroic impulses Mm -hmm. and to acknowledge that nature doesn't like need us to be its doctor. Right. Which brings us to another thing that we wanted to add on to what's going on with this book. Yeah. So sometimes when reading this book, it was easy for me to feel like what was happening was just, is just um, a conundrum we all suddenly woke up and found ourselves in. And that we need to figure a way out of. Right. And it doesn't feel very grounded in history. Uh-huh. The disaster of history. Yeah. <laughs> if I thought about it in more of a Benjamin type way. Uh, um, yeah. And doesn't seem to be in a line. Well, I guess it, what I would say is it feels like it's like lacking some analysis on um, the fact that there are forces, both individuals and organizations, and even just forces bigger than that, that are deeply invested in us continuing on this suicidal path that we're on mm-hmm. and not only suicidal, ecocidal, which is more important. Yep. Um, and so where, where is that critique of the powers that be? And can we even talk about all of this and strategize without confronting power and talking about power in that way? Right. And as right. an aside to that, I would also say that there's a time that it even feels like there's a conflation of power to with power over, and that we should maybe even be avoiding gaining power because we will likely abuse it. So there's a lot in there, and yeah. I don't know which part we want to pick up, but I will just say that like I am often thinking this isn't happening in a vacuum. Right. There are a lot of forces keeping things the way they are. Yeah. And that are keeping people from even having time and energy to consider doing differently. Right. Right. I'm, I'm with you on that. I do feel like that the book, she doesn't engage much with what would limit or resist the kind of work that the book is trying to uplift. Right. And definitely doesn't go to the next step, which would be how can we persist and resist in the face of what would oppose us right. in doing this work? You know, so this is definitely some of, some of what we want to talk about too. Cause I mean, even in, even in Haraway's domain, which is the university, you know, and she doesn't only uplift scientists, but she uplifts a lot of scientists or, or people who are academically trained who are doing these kind of creative outside the box work that she talks about. But you know, university funding is getting cut. The grants and the funding that... Especially if they pertain to climate change. Especially if they pertain to climate change. Yeah. And especially if they don't feed directly into the economy. Right. Making the economy work harder. Right. And so, I mean, that, just even from her perspective, as I'm trying to, like, put myself in her place Mm -hmm. more, even just from her perspective, 
you know, she's like, let's have more of this type of science art mm-hmm. stuff or whatever. But then the world where that stuff is incubated and nurtured is like changing really fast. We're going to crowdsource all these art science world. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's going to yeah. be, it's going to be on Kickstarter instead. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, funded by more and more economically precarious and cash-strapped individuals or something, you know, to fund this stuff instead of, you or know... Or having to make more and more compromise while you let corporations pay for your thing so they look better. Yeah, you know? right. So there's all kinds of, like, there's all kinds of limitations that you could see. It That's just one. I mean, the mm-hmm. thing about university funding is just one little, you know, kind of intersection here. But, um, you know, but obviously the capitalists are doubling down on their needs Mm -hmm. as there's fewer resources in the system and stuff is going into crisis Mm -hmm. and they are doubling down. I mean, that's why we have the president that we do in the United States right now, who's like deregulate everything, like no oversight, like Mm -hmm. more profit to all the companies, you know, they, they are doubling down um, and trying to just still make the, the, the bucks as easy as they can while the system, you know, sustains them for a few more years or something. Uh, anyway, we don't have to do a whole diagnosis of all of the forces that are opposing this kind of work, mm-hmm. but there are forces opposing this kind of work. And, you know? the, and as the economy you know, becomes more, less and less feasible at the f- face of, in the face of limits to growth. Yeah. Um, the squeeze is being put on workers more and more and on cash poor folks more and more and people, even people of means maybe working like five jobs. Yeah. Um, and so we are keeping like more and more intensely distracted just through the basic survival cost to our lives and time and energy and money. Right. And it's hard to think outside of that, to think of the scope, the level of awareness and how many things we have to hold at one time so we can even consider what we're facing globally uh-huh. is hard to hold at mm-hmm. the same time as it is just trying to make ends meet. In the absence of an analysis of power, because right. the book does not have a very strong analysis of power, mm-hmm. although it acknowledges all kinds of like colonization and patriarchy and all it acknowledges a lot of forms of power, mm-hmm. including capitalism, that are held over people. It doesn't have, it's not grounded in an analysis of power. It's weird. Right. But in the absence of an analysis of power, one way that the book could be taken, uh-huh. I don't think she means it this way, but one way it could be taken, and we've talked about this in a previous podcast, but is like, let's push this way of thinking, uh-huh. sympoietic, tentacular, everything, into the way that the world is managed. Right. Like push it upward, like advocate for it. And that's just not, I'm not here for that. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not here for like, I'm not here for like, let's, let's write and educate and lobby and try and get the management and the governance of the world to incorporate. Tentacular thinking. Tentacular thinking. Right. Um, You're like, let's get rid of the managers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, I don't think that's the vision that Haraway's putting forward. You know. She just doesn't go to great pains to exclude that vision. Right. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. So we need to add on to this book, I think, an analysis of power, which is relevant in more than one way, right? This is just going back over stuff that we just talked about, but it's relevant in assessing where we're going to meet resistance, where we're going to meet obstacles, right? And that's the thing, is like, if you start practicing in this way, then, see, and this is where a really fruitful conversation could happen, and I really want to have this conversation, but but we're just going to suggest it here but it's like if you start practicing in this way and you're like all right direct action let's put these ideas on the ground again the navajo churro sheep is like my favorite example in the book not that they were like we're going to do what haraway says but you know she picked it out as an example of some ways of practicing Mm -hmm. that she likes what are the possibilities 
you have success up to a point and then you meet resistance where the system's not going to budge or some of what you're bringing gets recuperated or incorporated into the system in some way as like a reform or a modification you know or there's this like tantalizing but vague third possibility which is that by dint of multiple pressure at multiple points that a transformation occurs you know which may end up with an outcome or future we can't even imagine right yeah which is like so that means it's hard to strategize for right but especially in the context of an empire that is already in decline right and a capitalist system that is in decline and is going to be facing ruptures and schisms and the possible loss of control over its parts already, mm -hmm. then there's cracks opening where we can exert force and sort of try and catalyze some of these transformations, you know? Right. And that's, I think, that's a very different vision than, like, we need to seize power. Right. In, like, the, uh, an old-school, like, Marxist sense, or, sure. like, a Leninist sense, let's say, of the people need to, like, seize the state. Mm -hmm. Or seize power in some way, and then wield power in the name of the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'm not that interested in that kind of revolution either. Right. And I think, and, and I'm with Haraway, where she's like, be suspicious of that. That might be your pricktail coming up. Okay, so as long as we're talking about the prick tail, um, I would like to get a little bit more specific as a final wrap-up conversation here mm -hmm. and summarize sort of my take on this conversation that's happening in and around Haraway's book around different visions for change, different forms of storytelling towards change, and how that relates to how that relates to power, basically. And all of this kind of, the prick tale, <laughs> as has come up in the previous chapters, is uh, kind of a emblematic element of all of this, mm -hmm. right? Let's set the stage, okay? So when it comes to working towards change and working towards liberation, there are a lot of different strategies and stances that people take towards that, okay? And... One of them that's just kind of a perennial thing, it's always out there, you know, at least as, at least going back to Marx's theories of the, the revolutionary proletariat and all that, is that almost like no matter, no matter how oppression is being carried out in the given moment, the important work, the most important work is always simply, <laughs> which I say in quotes because it's not that simple, to just get enough people into the streets, basically, mm -hmm. so that the system is massively disrupted mm -hmm. and the power is overthrown, mm -hmm. that the state is overthrown, right. after which we can make the society that we want to live in. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know this, that like, no matter how we diagnose the various intersecting problems of the state that we're in mm -hmm. that like that is still the solution right. you know and that's what that's one image of the revolution right you know in the marxist sense traditionally like it would be like organizing the workers right organizing the working class mm -hmm. nowadays it might look a little bit different uh but it's still like basically the goal is to get enough people to put down reproducing business as usual, to leave the reproduction of misery, enter, you know, the streets, like basically is kind of like the archetypal site of this, you know, and raise hell until the system collapses, mm -hmm. right? That our work is to muster the energy and the numbers and whatever it is to break through to the better place. 
you know, to, to break out of the trap that we're in into whatever post-revolutionary possibility we've been dreaming of. And, you know, of course, that's super oversimplified because how to get all those people into the streets is a matter for current tactics and all of that. And then how the system after, like how the new world after the revolution would be constructed is like something people spend a lot of time thinking about. But still, like the fulcrum point, the thing that we should be putting all of our energy into is is that uprising, you know. So with that image of the revolution as kind of a very time-honored, you know, but also kind of crusty and like... Well, and the limitations have become obvious as um, groups of power, groups of individuals or organizations have seized power in similar ways or even more problematic ways than the power they were overthrowing. Right. And yeah, and and yeah, historical example, because there have been revolutions of that type that were limited, you know, to a particular country or something that resulted in equally oppressive governments. Right. You know, that gets to the question of, do you seize the state while keeping the state intact? Mm -hmm. Or do you dismantle the state? You know, which is, that's a whole argument that's been going on forever. But we have this as sort of the default idea. And it's still a lot of people's baseline idea. And uh, part of what I hear Haraway saying with this book, because mm -hmm. she's familiar with that idea, um, and not just her, but Stengers and her allies and the people who she calls into this book, is there's nowhere to break through to. There's nowhere to break out to. There's this. And that's what staying with the trouble is kind of about, is that we move into the future building off of what's already here, making new connections with the elements that are already in place. And it feels to me that the spirit of this book is very much in resistance to this kind of transcend, transcendent or transcendental idea or whatever, that, that a moment of delirious rupture will free us from the present mm -hmm. and transport us into a new reality. And, you know, Haraway is saying, you know, part of what she's bringing in is that, like, climate change is like the cat's out of the back. You know, no matter what happens politically, humans have unleashed this thing that's going to continue to run a destructive course for generations. At yeah. least. And then also, there's more of an ideological thing that's happening too, which is that, that maybe this emphasis on breaking out, breaking free, neglecting the complexities of the present, mm. and instead just constituting the present as the thing to be left behind... Mm. Mm -hmm. is destructive in itself. Mm -hmm. Well, because there's also this, like, way that it's like a, we're waiting for the, ne for the next thing instead right. of acting. Right. We're right. waiting for a messianic moment of some kind. Right. Yeah. Where, like, anything that you would do to marginally increase flourishing <laughs> um, in the present that's not the revolution or that's not actively trying to trigger the revolution or facilitate it in some way could be written off by revolutionaries as a reformist measure, you know, mm -hmm. something that's just trying to make the intolerable present a little less hard when really the present is just intolerable because it's constituted on all of these fucked up premises and it simply just needs to be trashed. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand this tension. I understand wanting to not just tinker with the present in the hopes of making it a little more bearable and wanting to actually make a big break and overthrow our oppressors. And I also understand, you know, and appreciate everything that Haraway and her allies and her ilk and, and everybody who's bringing a similar critique in a different way and using different language you know, which is that what we're doing now prefigures the world that could be after the revolution, or what we're doing now is maybe creating the world that we want. And there might not be a big moment where things suddenly change in just the space of two or three short years. Mm -hmm. And that waiting on that, or just putting all our energy into making that happen, neglects a lot of work that we can and should be doing, and that would actually be transformative 
if we had a different model for what transformation could look like, what could create transformation, you know? And then also there's the, what you might call the feminist analysis that's layered in there too, which is the prick tail versus the carrier bag. Right. Where the revolution, like I've talked about here, is more of a prick tail story, mm-hmm. you know? It's more of, there might not be like a masculine hero that like leads the revolution, but it's still the heroic sort of muscular, courageous activity of the uprising proletarians to make a clean break. Mm-hmm. You know, she even, when she talks about the pricktail, it's like the sword, the thing that cuts to make a clean break, to like turn the world upside down and all of this stuff, you know, because like Marduk, who's like a archetypal pricktail character from um, Mesopotamian mythology, like just remakes the world through his like heroic act against chaos and everything. I was just thinking too that like um, a lot of times we don't bring up the pen and what and she brings up the pen as mm-hmm. also part of the prick tale. And in that situation, I don't think she just means writing, but what she means is like ideology. Yeah. And I wanted to bring ideology up in here yeah. to say, like, having looked at the historical examples right. of this, when there is an ideology right. that does the thinking for people, right. then we don't have very good outcomes. Right. So I just yeah. wanted to throw ideology right. into this as we're listing off the tools. Mm-hmm. Right. And what can be opposed to ideology, the word, the pen, the sword, is what she talks about, the carrier bag, which is gathering and collecting, you know. Mm -hmm. And you gather and collect partially from the elements of the present, because it's not that nothing, it's not that we don't want anything that's here now, (laughs) you know. And collecting, composting, gathering, and assembling what we have access to into a livable world Mm -hmm. is also transformational and revolutionary. So anyway, this is kind of the opposition. I've been helped in processing the book and what's going on with it by thinking of this kind of opposition, putting all your energy into the transcending revolutionary moment on one hand versus what Haraway is saying, which is, it's just this. Let's just stay with the trouble, pay attention, make connections, make alliances, and through these actions, we can build slowly, non-innocently, but ultimately, very powerfully and responsibly, the future flourishing by acknowledging the connections that we are a part of and extending those connections in novel ways, remembering what's been dismembered and trying new things. And, and that that will be what actually sustains us. That, w- that will be the struggle, kind of, you know, which I find to be very powerful, really mm-hmm. powerful idea. So then, out of this opposition, has us thinking about, there's a third, there's a third way, what I'm calling a third way, that I feel like could be elucidated out of the tension between the, the opposition to these two frameworks. And it comes out of, you know, the, the sort of, the pretext for wanting or feeling like we need this third way is everything that we've kind of talked about already on the podcast today so far, which is just that, like, where's the acknowledgement that this that this sympoietic connecting practice is going to run up against limitations, is going to run up against opposition. And violent repression. And possibly violent repression. And, yeah, like, about how there's, there's not strategizing in the book about how to defend ourselves, outmaneuver, protect ourselves from... And to resist, you know, uh, the forces that don't want us to do this work. But for me, like, to think in the ways that Haraway is teaching us to think, it naturally follows. That thinking naturally follows into strategic thinking Mm -hmm. that involves sustaining our struggles and undermining our enemies. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just part of where my thinking automatically goes. Like, for instance, here's an example, right? Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm into permaculture, and I study permaculture, and we practice it here on the land, right? Which is just, permaculture is just an easy word to point to towards, like, applied ecology. The art and science and practices of humans trying to 
integrate themselves into ecology in a way that's beneficial for the humans and for the ecology. And it's very much in line with what Staying with the Trouble is all about. And part of what goes along with the permaculture idea is that if we think ecologically by the way that we try to manage the systems that sustain us and like grow our food and grow our medicine and stuff, then we will benefit. We won't have to maybe work as hard because we are going with the flow of nature instead of going against it. You know, by having to plow the field all the time and use fossil fuels and tractors to do it and then destroying the soil and then replacing the fertility with chemical fertilizers and all this type of stuff, right? So, but one could think like, okay, if we employ these practices, if we create these more ecological habitats for us to live in, then we will become healthier, more ecologically literate, more enmeshed in the web of life and able to draw sustenance and power from that, more autonomous and resilient in the context of capitalism, where if you're producing more of what you need for your home just right around you in your neighborhood and locally, then you don't have to go to the store as much, you don't have to buy things as much, so you're less dependent on cash, you're less dependent on money, you know. And, you know, if you collect rainwater or whatever, then you're more resilient against water outages, Mm -hmm. you know, just all of this stuff, right? And so that greater resilience and that greater autonomy and that greater skill building puts us in a better position to struggle, puts us in a better position to fight against the forces that oppress us, against capitalism and the state, because we are less dependent on them. Mm-hmm. And we're also more just more sustained in our struggles by what we can reap instead of just reaping through earning money in at jobs and in capitalism. We actually reap from ecological systems that we're a part of. Yeah. And that greater autonomy gives us more wiggle room and more space to actually like take risks, apply pressure to the pressure points of the system to try to force transformations to happen. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing is a really natural train of thought for me to follow. (laughs) And not just me. I mean, there's lots of us who are like, yes, 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 and connecting the dots in these ways. Um, And just one thing that I've noticed in Haraway's book is that she is that she stops at a certain point along that train of association Mm -hmm. where it's like form the connections, weave yourself into ecologies. But how those methods can be like wielded in our favor as power building is not something that she seems very excited to talk about. I think it's because she conflates power with the revolution story, which is what I was saying earlier. Yeah. I don't think that she always considers power building as building networks of food and self-reliance and mutual aid and creating alternative systems to the systems that are extractive Mm -hmm. um, as a form of building power. Mm-hmm. Or maybe she just doesn't want to talk about power. I don't know. Right. I'm not sure what's going on. But this is something that I would like to add <laughs> to the book, is the idea that to be inspired by this book and to follow what it's gesturing towards and to go in that direction also could and should maybe put us in a better position against our opponents. And that that can be a way to guide us in the work mm-hmm. as well is not just by doing these things just for the sake of doing them, but doing them with a mind and a perception towards, does this increase our power? Power in that sense as just the capacity of communities to provide for themselves and resist the forces that would exploit them. I was just thinking that, you know, I guess it should be at least pointed out that at the end, and the sci-fi part and the Camille stories, her world changing and shifting does seem to be really centered on communities in post-apocalyptic industrial waste zones who are rebuilding the world mm-hmm. and so i think that that she must at least see some form of power being built there or some potential for that kind of action as like a third path yeah um it's just that in those stories which are just kind of sketches mm-hmm. a lot came up for both of us on around um what does that mean yeah but what about the forces that are not don't want you doing what you're doing or how are you going to 
protect your communities or deal with the fact that there are people benefiting and profiting from the hard times the world is going through. But I do, I just do want to say that she did seem to be pointing to that as a yeah a model for power building, even if she doesn't call it that. Right, right. Yeah, I don't think it's incompatible, mm-hmm. which is why I'm proposing that it could be added on right. to the book. I don't think that there's a total incompatibility there. Um, and I know I keep bringing up, like, is she saying we shouldn't think like this or right. something? But I think if she's saying that, it's because she, it's because she has these certain ideas right. about ideology, heroic, pricktail power. Mm-hmm. But I think that we can still work to undermine the forces that oppress us and have that in mind in this way that is carrier bag. In a way that Ursula K. Le Guin would approve of. You know, in a way that Donna Haraway is also talking about. This is all reminding me of something that a listener said. This person made the observation that Haraway and also some of these ecological type fingers like her tend to put much more of an emphasis on connections and making connections and attachments, making new connections and multiplying connections than they do on detaching and disconnecting from what we need to disconnect from and from what harms us, right? Because we're not unconnected, right? We are supported by flows a lot of these flows are wrapped up in capital, are wrapped up in the state. We are connected. We are connected to workforces overseas. You know, if we live in America, we are connected to food that's grown in all different places, California, but in like other countries, all this stuff, right? And that's just some obvious things. And Haraway in the chapter on, ten- on tentacular thinking talks about how the tentacular ones make attachments and detachments, how they connect and they sever. But I think it is true that the book ha- makes more of an emphasis on multiplying connection than on articulating like which connections we're already a part of that we would be better off without. I think that she is, I mean, I do think that her emphasis on connection is strategic in the way that she's identifying a core problem in our culture as the emphasis on the finite individuated self mm-hmm. as separate from everyone else, whether that, you know, you can call that the neoliberal subject or you could call it just the individual, whatever. Right. Um, but right. uh, that self as distinct from everyone else and all of other life as a unit is really harmful. And so I think she wants to write stories and theories and frameworks that are countering that mm-hmm. by increasing connection. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when she does draw attention to negative connections or part systems that we're part of, we might not want to be. Yeah. It's more like almost as a point of interest, uh, like her, the hormone stories about her dog or about, um, herself, you know, like that is kind of tying you into all these, Mm -hmm. um, unpleasant to think about supply chains that get the hormones to her and to her dog. Right. Um, you know, so she brings those up, but it's almost just like, this is curious and let's think about where all our stuff comes from. And we should think about that, but that's it. You know, you don't really get a lot of like, and therefore I'm no longer giving my dog hormones or, um, (laughs) although you get the idea that she does make a lot of choices in life based on rejecting certain things. Um, yeah. Or disconnecting from certain things. Right. Just from the way she talks about her life. But I think that, that I can't decide if there's just a strategic thing and not naming the systems mm-hmm. because she wants to get have more people take in her ideas who might be defensive if we start talking about their nice stuff uh-huh. or about like <laughs> right. the ways right. that they are complicit in the problems. Right. Um, because we all are in to varying degrees, right. you know, and so I don't know. I would add that, like, just as the new connections and the attachments that we need to make are not necessarily obvious to us now, the same is true for some of the detachments. Mm -hmm. That it's going to be something that arises from the process. Mm -hmm. You know? And I think that our reflexive ideas of what detachment looks like need to be questioned. Right. You know. That's a good point. But still, I want to thank uh, that contributor for just bringing up that framework for thinking. Not all entanglements 
are beneficial. Right. And actually, right? some of them are keeping us from moving forward mm-hmm. in a way that is... It's keeping us from healing, it's keeping the world from healing, and it's keeping us from... Some of the entanglements are keeping us from creating a world that can hold us all. Right. You know? And some of the entanglements are keeping us from making healthier entanglements. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Keeping us from moving towards healthier entanglements. So, yeah. Can I read a quote? Yes. Okay, so I've got this from um, Towards an Anarchist Anthropology by David Graeber. Great book. Yeah. So he says, The theory of Exodus proposes that the most effective way of opposing capitalism and the liberal state is not through direct confrontation, but by means of what Paolo Virno has called engaged withdrawal, mass defection by those wishing to create new forms of community. One need only glance at the historical record to confirm that most successful forms of popular resistance have taken precisely this form. They have not involved challenging power head-on. This usually leads to being slaughtered, or if not, turning into some often even uglier variant of the very thing one first challenged. But from one or another strategy of slipping away from its grasp, from flight, desertion, the founding of new communities. Yeah. So I think that... I see place for both because I think there's going to have to be some direct challenge too. Yeah. Especially as there's likely to be increased repression with resource scarcity yeah. rising and with the movement of populations around the world within in response to resource scarcity. Mm-hmm. There is going to be a need for defense, protecting more vulnerable communities and also facing power. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, I think we also it's very important that we be building up ways of life where we can create a critical mass of positive entanglements as we disconnect ourselves from the negative entanglements. Yes, that's great. That's a great quote and a great, I think, way to end it. Maybe. The whole book? (laughs) What do you think? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, maybe for now. Well, what do you, do you have any final thoughts uh, as we conclude this wrap-up episode? No, but I, I'm feeling a little bit of a loss if we're not going to talk about the book anymore, so we might have to figure out something else to talk about soon. <laughs> well, we are, one of our ideas for how to carry this on through the summer has been to discuss short readings that relate to this book and the themes of the book. So, do you want to plan on that? Yeah. Yeah, let's plan on that. Um, so, for y'all out there, we will... How should we do this? We ha- How will we inform people of a reading? I guess we'll put out a short episode. I guess we'll put out a short episode about we'll what we're We'll put out a short it. episode. We'll talk about something we're going to read for the next week or something like that. We can also put it out on our Facebook group. Yeah. Yeah, we already have a few articles bookmarked Mm -hmm. that elaborate and intersect with Staying with the Trouble. Um, So we'll have sporadic episodes throughout the summer. And then maybe in the fall we'll read a whole book again? And then in the fall we'll come back and do another book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks for being with us uh, as we discussed piece by piece every little part of Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble. It's been really fun, and this experience uh, has been really generative um, for us and hopefully for you too. And so stay subscribed, please, and we will keep this going. We are going to keep this going. We'll be in touch. We'll be in touch. All right. Bye-bye.